This episode is dedicated to the loving memory of Tim Fuller, who sadly passed away in his sleep the morning of June 9th, 2023. As a leader in Christian higher education, he was a trailblazer, a storyteller, and a Christian family man. Tim's profound impact and cherished friendship will be deeply missed by myself and so many others within the higher education community. We dedicate this episode to him. You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing in higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. My name is Troy Singer, along with Mark Kaler. Each week, we interview higher ed marketers that we admire for the benefit and hopefully the betterment of the entire higher ed community. Today, we talk to a good friend of both Bart and I. His name is Tim Fuller. And today, we get thoughts from an enrollment expert that every marketer should know. You'll soon learn that Tim has years of experience. He is someone that visits different campuses every week. He's someone that has a lot of experience that he's willing to share with us so marketers can understand how they can better affect their enrollment teams. Yeah, I think Tim's a great guest, and a lot of people who listen to the podcast will recognize Tim. He's he's uh, kind of a, a leading authority within the uh, the faith based Christian higher education segment of of our larger higher ed market. I have known Tim for several years, and I have partnered with him on several projects, and so I've learned a lot from him over the years, uh, and and it's made me a better higher ed marketer. And so I really encourage you to kind of take a listen to this, and I think it will do the same for you. Here's our conversation with Tim Fuller. Tim, we appreciate you joining us and agreeing to share some of a lot of the knowledge that you've (laughs) accumulated over the years. Both Bart and I are very familiar with you, and we'll get into the details of that in a couple of minutes. But to start our conversation off, if you would, please share with us and our listeners something that you would deem fun or interesting that you may have learned recently? So I have a weird hobby. Uh, it's collecting golf balls. I live on the 13th hole of a golf course. And yesterday I'd been sitting in my chair writing all day. And I thought, I'm just going to go out and get some fresh air. And I'll walk past, a, through a stretch of woods that I've walked through several times. I'm sure there's no more golf balls there. Found 11 more. And so I'm thinking, <laughs> so the interesting thing would be, how did I miss those the first time? Or are people out there playing in the polar vortex? Or what's going what's going on here? But anyways, my exactly. wife always thought it would be good for me to have a hobby. I'm just not sure that she's convinced this is what she had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for reference, we are recording in the month of February, and you live in the Indianapolis right. area, so... It's not typical golf weather where no, you are at this time no, of no, year. I think the wind chill earlier today was about minus one. 
It is definitely cold out. For our listeners, this is Tim Fuller. He is the founder of Fuller Higher Ed Solutions. And Tim, if you could continue an introduction of yourself and let the listeners know a little bit about your experience within this wonderful world of higher ed. Sure, Troy. My career really around higher education uh, falls into three, three categories. I started working at my alma mater, Houghton University now, just changed their, their, to the university name. Uh, in 1980, as an admission counselor, had great mentors. I learned a lot, stayed there for 27 years, kind of moved up the ranks. And then in 2007, I left them to join a company called Credo and was with them for 13 years on the consulting side. And then uh, two and a half years ago, I went out on my own with Fuller Higher Ed Solutions. So uh, we're focused, our company is focused on specifically on Christian higher education enrollment strategic planning, research, and a few other things like that, that those kinds of colleges need and, and want. So I've spent a lifetime hanging around these types of colleges, hopefully learned a lot and uh, eager to share a lot with, with campuses as, as the occasion presents itself. So and if there is a ballpark number that you could put on it, um, I, I personally know you are on the road a lot of the time. How many campuses would you say you visit in a given year? That's a good question, Troy. You know, those people who know me won't be surprised that I actually keep track of these things. And I have on my bucket list that I'd like to be on every campus in North America at some point. But I think I'm still missing probably a hundred or so from that list of 350 that fall into this niche uh, that I work with. But I'd say the typical year, I'm probably on 40 or 50 campuses at least. Uh, sometimes for a couple hours, but more times for a longer term uh, multiple engagement. So, And I only ask that to give a reference point to our listeners as someone you are someone that has a lot of experience and can draw from a lot of different scenarios. With that said, in following you and knowing you, I know one of the things that you are very passionate about is discussing the upcoming demographic and enrollment cliff. And I don't think I've heard anyone describe it as well as you of what the difference is. And I appreciate you helping me understand. I would like to know if you could give an explanation to our listeners and help introduce us into a conversation around it. Yeah. Uh, it is an important thing for higher education leaders to be aware of, regardless of obviously people in enrollment who make their livings on when it comes to traditional students on how 18 year olds make decisions. Uh, but it's important for others to know this as well too. Uh, planning budgets, doing enrollment projections and the impact that has on the business model of a college or university. So, um, so the, the best, the, at least the best source that I found for looking at what this, the so-called demographic cliff looks like is, is, uh, the Western interstate commission for higher education, which uh, wichi.edu, uh, and their periodic publication currently in its 11th edition called Knocking at the College Door. And when you go to that publication and go to the profile section, what it allows you to do is pull up your state or your region, or for campuses that are, have more of a national footprint, you can look at things nationally. And 
it allows you to look, they, based on birth rates and migration and so on, they're projecting high school graduates uh, out to 2037 uh, in this edition. And it's really helpful data to look at, first of all, to get kind of a general picture of what your state looks like. But then to go deeper than that, the WICHE data also breaks down those projections by the ethnic background of the projected high school graduates. So, for example, you might look at you might look at a state and go, "Oh, well, what? That's not really a demographic cliff. It actually looks fairly stable out to 2037." Right? It might, depending on the state. But that state also might see that, that uh, the Caucasian graduates projected are are in decline, a steep decline. But the Hispanic graduates are in an ascent uh, quite vigorously. So if you are a campus that has been uh, not been particularly successful in attracting and serving well uh, the Hispanic population, you can't look at the overall projection and go, oh, we're fine. You really have to go deeper and look at that breakdown and go, huh, we better be ready not only to attract, but to serve an increasingly diverse student body well, so that we're ready to maintain at least our, our enrollment numbers, if not try and grow them. So it's really helpful data to be looking at. Uh, and it varies so much by state too. Those of us who live in, in states where cold temperatures and snow are a regular thing, uh, generally speaking, our projections are not looking as good as the projections in warmer places. Uh, an interesting contrast would be, for example, to look at the difference between Illinois or Michigan and Texas. And there in, in Illinois and Michigan, you see a fairly steady decline uh, over this period of time. Not so much a cliff, but a decline that has already started those projections. Whereas in Texas, you see some fairly robust growth and some really interesting things happening on that when you look at the ethnic breakdown as well. Too. So. It's really important for planners, enrollment planners and others on college and university campuses to, number one, be aware of that data. And then number two, to be asking and answering the, the all-important so what and now what question. And, and to me, part of what the so what of knowing this is, is number one, if we haven't figured out how to serve a more post-traditional population, adults wanting to complete a graduate degree, they have some credit, but not a credential, uh, or people who now want to get a graduate degree, figuring that out involves some different strategies. This is the higher ed marketer podcast after all. So it's some different, different marketing strategies, Bart, to use your term, some different watering holes, but it's also some different recruiting strategies in order to reach those populations. Of course, a very different way of often of delivering programs to much more toward the blended and or fully online uh, program that work much better in an adult's uh, schedule, where often your biggest competition for an adult learner is not another institution, but it's life itself and all of the, all of the complications of family and work right. and so on, and then juggling education. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ardeo Education Solutions. Ardeo helps colleges and universities increase access to education while giving students and families financial peace of mind. 
Ardeo's loan repayment assistance programs, known as LRAPs, help students with modest incomes repay their federal student, parent plus, and private loans. Ardeo's LRAPs give students the confidence they need to enroll and are a win-win for your institution. To learn more about Ardeo and see case studies from institutions like yours, visit ardeo.org. That's A-R-D-E-O dot org. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the conversation right here on the Higher Ed Marketer. Yeah, I think those are great points, Tim. And I, in all transparency for everyone listening, Tim and I do a lot of work together. And so we have these conversations on the road and, and, and do a lot of things like this. But I, one of the things that came up recently in, a, in an engagement we were with is just the importance of um, the enrollment team and the marketing team understanding one another and being able to you know, have these conversations. And so that's part of what I guess I would ask you, Tim, is that you know in your experience and what you see, I mean, I'm sure a lot of higher ed marketers might be listening to this podcast and saying, okay, yeah, it's enrollment cliff. I get that. That's kind of important. And they're asking the so what for them. Well, my argument would be the so what for you is the fact that, you know, as a marketer, you're going to be turned to to say, what should we do? There is a challenge. How are we going to overcome it? And and I think that so many times many schools lack that cohesiveness between the marketing and the and the admissions. So tell me a little bit about your experience and what you see in that. Everything isn't fixed by meetings. In fact, I sometimes joke that Patrick Lencioni wrote Death by Meetings after hanging around a university campus for a while, because uh, I think sometimes our prescription is, well, we better get together and talk about <laughs> it. But I do think it's pretty important for there to be a strong working relationship between the enrollment team and the marketing team, regardless of what the org chart says about who reports to who. Uh, there needs to be a strong working relationship so that there's good learning from each other uh, and good cooperation when it comes to the need to pivot. If we need to pivot in some way toward attracting post-traditional learners, that's never been a priority for us. How do we do that? Well, in some cases, it might require those really important professionals in both of those offices to learn some things together about some new ways of doing things. I think the other place where the cooperation between those two is so important is the other issue that you have to think about. If we are facing, more so in some places than others, a demographic cliff and the supply side of prospective students on the traditional will be less, then by all means, we better be really intentional, sharp, focused, strategic, whatever words you want to apply in the way we go about recruiting whatever's left. Uh, and so the partnership between the two, Bart, the example we see on a lot of our campuses is when the website is not optimized for uh, the, what I think, and I know I've heard you say it, it's got an enrollment-focused website. And so when, when that's not happening, sometimes the way to fix that is to make sure that those two partners, enrollment and marketing, are together on the same page to say this is what the web the website is. We both said this to campuses. The website is our most important recruitment tool. We cannot afford to have it be sloppy or incomplete uh, or too hard to find things on it. Can't afford to do that. Now, sometimes those partners need to uh, gang up is probably not the right term, but uh, team together when it comes to the other other people on campus who would say, oh, no, that's not the most important thing, uh, whether it's advancement or the academic side of the house right. or whatever it would be. So I think that partnership is vital for a whole bunch of reasons. 
one of the most important roles of a, of a chief enrollment officer is bridge builder. And you've got to be regularly building those bridges and walking across them to your internal partners on campus. Part of what I've learned as a, as a higher ed marketer, just as a, you know, before I was in higher education exclusively, I did a lot of work in corporate work. And, and so, you know, I, I remember, and, and you know, this person, Mike Collette was the, uh, you know, vice president at Anderson University, my alma mater. And that was one of the first schools that I did work with. They asked me to help them with their website. I learned so much from Mike on just what higher ed marketing was and what it what it meant to do with enrollment and understanding what yield was and all these different phrases. I, I, I really learned a lot from Mike and I've continued to learn a lot because I listen to the people who are doing enrollment. Um, I know that one of the things you talked about, you know, some of the here in the Midwest, you know, the challenge of the Caucasian market going down, but the Hispanic rising. Well, there's a whole different way to market to Hispanic students because of their family and cultural aspects that I learned from an enrollment person. And so that's something that I don't think I would have known just by, you know, looking at, you know, the the winners of the recent awards on, on case or other places. It's that partnership that I think really drives a lot of the things that we need to do and, and the ways that we need to engage with one another. I consider myself lucky being privy to conversations between you, Bart, and Tim. And one of the things that you've talked about in the past is the importance of blocking and tackling, which, you know, I'm a football fan, so that has a certain (laughs) meaning for me. I'm sure it's not the same way that you mean to prescribe it. So if you could, A, explain what that means, and then B, as you are going out and consulting with the universities that you are, where what scenarios are you applying that? Let me start with a story. I was doing a project on a campus that I knew well, and I knew the president well, and I also knew the VP for enrollment pretty well. And the president said to me in a quiet conversation, oh, Tim, I'm not sure that our vice president is innovative enough for what we need right now. And again, I knew him well, I knew the institution, I knew the vice president well. And I said to him, you know, with all due respect, which, which by the way, is the Northern version of the Southern bless your heart. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I lived in North Carolina for a while and, and learned the bless your heart thing. Yeah, anyways, I said to this hmm. president, you know, with all due respect, the reason why I'm here talking to you is, and you need help as, as part of this seven year slide in enrollment is all you've done for the last seven years is chase innovation. And it's sort of like that dog in the movie up, you know, squirrel, squirrel. And and it's easy to do what this institution had forgotten to do was the basics of when a student asks for information, we respond in a timely manner. We have a clear plan so that, I mean, down to the level, not just the big picture strategic enrollment, when an admission counselor comes to work in the morning, They have a clear sense of what they're supposed to do, what success looks like for them, how they'll be measured, how what they do contributes to the big picture of not just the office and their ongoing tenure, but to the university's success. And some of the blocking and tackling also relates to having the right data in hand. Uh, I come back briefly to the marketing enrollment partners. I find on the marketing side, look, our strategies are doing a great job of generating tons of leads. But if they're leads from the wrong people, they're not productive. They can actually clog our system. So part of the blocking and tackling back to that partnership is making sure there's clear understanding of 
of what are the metrics that are most important to watch so that we're not chasing false positives. Uh, you know, one of the things I see in the data, for example, that, that impacts this whole issue of blocking and tackling sometimes is there are lots of vendors out there who will say, hey, we can help you quadruple your applications. Okay, that sounds good on paper, especially if you're thinking that the admission funnel is like the funnel you use in your garage or your kitchen, and if we pour more in the top, more will come out the bottom. But if it's the wrong more, or if we don't have the systems and the throughput to make it, make it work, then more in the top is actually going to be a problem, uh, not an opportunity. So to me, part of that blocking and tackling tour refers to not only the tactics, the big picture strategy, but the clarity around every person on the admission team knowing what they're supposed to do. And we say often on campuses, it takes a campus to recruit. So it's not just the admission team that needs to know what they're doing, but it's also the faculty. How, all right, my primary job as a faculty member is teaching and mentoring well the students I That's the best thing I can do to recruit more students to this place. But there are moments where my, where the admissions needs me to intervene. When students visit campus, when it's time to shape language around how we're going to talk about this program, and when it's time to close the deal, when a student's ready to make a decision. So how have we mobilized people appropriately so that they know what they're doing? A faculty member knows what they're doing. A financial aid person, a student life person knows how to receive the handoff of these great relationships that admissions has built with a prospective student. And they're ready to carry them seamlessly into the student's transition into the campus. And all of those things that fall into a category of the blocking and tackling that often gets overlooked. Yeah, and I think that there's even even that can be applied over to the marketing. I mean, I think, again, you know, there's blocking and tackling of, you know, it back to your story about the innovative VP and how that was challenging. I think that's the same type of thing happens in marketing where there's a shiny object that we're going after, whether it be, you know, Google ads or something else. And it's like, we're going to put all of our effort toward that, all of our eggs in that basket. And, and at the end of the day, it's like, are you really sending out, you know, persuasive emails on a comm flow that really works? Are you making sure that your view book represents who you are? Are your ads in the marketplace reflecting your brand and your benefits the way that you want to? I mean, you and I have been on a lot of campuses where there's just a lot of, there's a lot of noise when it's just not getting the clear, distinctive message across. Well, Bart, I think of that too, but let's come back to websites for a minute. If your website's beautiful, has great graphics beautiful pictures and video and everything else. But as a prospective student, I can't find whether or not you have my major or what it costs to go there. Then all of that beauty gets lost. Right. Creates too much friction. That's right. Yep. I remember too, a couple of times we've been in meetings together. I remember you tell a story from your days at Houghton about, um, you know, your president and how he responded to a big marketing pitch. Why don't you tell everybody about that? <laughs> Yeah, we were, this was toward the end of my 27 years at Houghton, and we engaged a really talented firm to help us do some rebranding. And so they were, the, the principal from the firm was there on campus and was walking through, here's what the view book would look like, and here's what the homepage would look like, and so on and so forth. And finished her presentation and looked at our president, who was coming to the end of his 30-year career at that point in time, said, well, Mr. President, what do you think? And 
uh, Dr. Chamberlain said, well, I like it very much in his distinctive voice. And the presenter started to move on and he said, and that concerns me. And she paused and says, well, you know, what do you mean? He said, I think at the time I'm 68 years old. If I like it, that might be a good thing. Did you ask any prospective students what they think about it? Cause it's for them and they hadn't. So they did. And fortunately they also liked it. Um, but you know, it's a great reminder of, yeah. uh, it's another blocking and tackling thing. If, if I, if I think something's good, I'm, you know, my age, if I think something's good, that might not resonate very well with an 18 right. year old. <laughs> yep. I would agree with you. That's perfect. Early in our conversation, we talked about that enrollment cliff storm cloud. And there's another storm cloud that's often discussed in higher ed, and that's the great resignation. I'd like to know if you have any thoughts about that. And if so, how can universities, colleges respond to it? It's a thing. I mean, it's a real thing. It's not just uh, something that got named in the media and suddenly, but it's it's an issue, Troy, and I, uh, I see it impacting campuses. I spend a lot of my time, of course, on the enrollment side of things, but also lead strategic planning on campuses, and so I see it happening more broadly. And I, th I think I've offered two particular thoughts. One, when we're hiring people for entry-level jobs, it helps to know what kind of people are we hiring and what's important to them. Um, I think, for example, with those frontline recruiter roles, when we hire people who are in their first job, their recent graduate, they love the place, and we hire them to do an admission counselor role, how are we investing in them in terms of training? Not just how to do expense reports and write a car, rent a car, but how are we investing in them to deal with the frequently asked questions? I'm out on the road someplace and somebody says, how do you sleep at night given what you're charging people for an education at your campus? If I'm six months into my first job, that's a really tough question to answer. Now, yeah, to answer. Now, chances are most people are not going to be rude enough to ask a question like that. But if you're, a, if you're in your first job, you're a little worried that at some point somebody's going to ask you that or explain what liberal arts means or... Uh, why is your campus worth choosing given how much it costs versus other options or, you know, any of those sorts of things. So I think one of the solutions to the great resignation is tied to training, uh, making sure that when we hire people, our onboarding process is thorough. It's not just sort of a two week boot camp and then, all right, you're good. Uh, but it's gotta be, if you're an enrollment counselor, an admissions counselor, that whole first year, is all new experiences for you because the cycle is different. So that'd be thing number one would be making sure the training is clear. The second would be if we're going to hire that type of person into their first job, then knowing some of the characteristics of the millennials that we'd be hiring into those jobs, we better be ready to paint a picture for them that's not just, uh, that's not just well, here's what you'll be doing for the next six months. But we better paint a longer picture. This could be the path to this. So if you do this well, and well means we've defined what success looks like. If you do this well for two years, then after those two years or one year, whatever the interval is, you'll get a promotion to senior counselor and you'll get a nice bump in salary. And after two more years, like could be assistant director, 
uh, and you get another nice bump in salary. I mean, I think it takes that sort of intentional uh, investment in training, but then also recognizing that if we don't, if we don't pick the path like that for people, they may not stick around with us a long time. And then we're, we're the, the, the cost of the great resignation is not just in the, the experience that walks out the door, but it's also in the distraction factor for the leaders who remain, who have spent time investing in this person to help them grow and then investing time in them to get them to stick around and then going through the search to find somebody to replace them and then starting the cycle all over again. That's, and I wrote a blog post about the, the concept of management attention units as it relates to that, that distraction. Sometimes when we think about what it costs us to pay a starting, a starting person in an admission council or other job, we go, yeah, but we can't really afford to pay more. But if that leads to constant turnover, can you really afford to have your, your middle managers and, the, and their bosses constantly distracted by this spin cycle of hiring? So I think that's one that's one thing we ought to be doing in the category. The other is maybe we ought to be hiring and compensating differently. Maybe we ought to be hiring people who are a little older, a little more life experience, and we ought to be paying them differently and, and expecting them to stick around long because of those expectations and the compensation that put in play there too. We can't just continue business as usual. I think that last statement is a little bit of a mic drop statement because I think that's part of the challenges that we've been trying to do things as business as usual, especially after the Great Recession and then going into the pandemic. Things have changed. The culture has changed. The way students think about education and the way the parents think about education has changed. There's a lot more options now. And uh, I think both in enrollment and in marketing, we've got to be a little bit more nimble to be able to pivot. I mean, is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, I think so. And I think some of it, Bart, comes back to as well, it comes back to the perspective that we were talking about earlier on marketing too. You know, I'm, I'm a boomer. And when I look at someone's resume that has essentially in my career, I had multiple positions at Houghton, but I was essentially there for 27 years and then at Credo for 13 and now two and a half here. Not a lot of bumps, but as a boomer, I look at a resume that has multiple, you know, 18 months here and two months, two years here and this, and I look at, boy, this person has no staying power. Well, got to be really careful of imposing our thoughts on that person uh, and, and, and their job pattern, because that may be, they may be wired differently. And we may be, we may need to think about both ends of that. How do we invest in such a way that we that we turn some of those 18-monthers into three- or four-year people, uh, how do we do that with some layer of intentional investment in their professional development training? But then also, how do we not assume that they're going to be like us? That right there leads me into my next question, because I think that sometimes that assumption of people are just like us is is far too often, especially at smaller schools, the way that decisions are being made, the way marketing decisions are being made. And I know that, uh, you know, with all the data that we have available, and I know you've told the story before that, you know, growing up as a kid, you liked the back of the baseball cards more than the front. And so that idea of, of really having that data. So let's talk about that for the last few minutes that we have together of just, you know, talking about how we can use this data, not only to kind of help us make these enrollment decisions, but how we're going to communicate that through the marketing and through other things. I mean, let's talk a little bit about that for a moment. There's a couple of steps 
that are important when it comes to data. And of course we're higher ed, so we're teaching people how to right. research, how to gather data, what's the right kind of data, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We're teaching people that on a regular basis. And yet it still surprises me uh, how many times I'm in a strategic planning engagement with a campus or I had an enrollment project where either they don't have a whole lot of data or they have scads of it, but they never take the most important step of all. Once you've gathered the right data and done it in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way, then you have to stop and do the ask the so what and now what question. What does it mean? So we talked about that before with the demographic cliff. So the data is there. Now, what do we do about it? Well, in the same way, we have to look, we have to look at the right kinds of data and ask that same question. If, for example, back to something I said earlier about the, the misnomer of the funnel, you know, more at the top doesn't necessarily mean more at the bottom. If we've been spending a couple hundred thousand dollars a year with one of the several vendors who's really good at helping generate more leads and more applications at the top of the funnel, but our enrolled student numbers continue to drop. Well, we better ask the so what and now what question is, is that the best use of those funds? You know, leads are good, but if they don't materialize into students who ultimately enroll, it leads to at least a couple of questions. Number one, were they the right leads? Or number two, are we generating great leads, but we don't have the systems, processes, training of our team to, to make something of those leads? So right. what's the solution? One of my mentors used to talk about how data is kind of like being on a hike someplace and you see an emergency flare go up in the distance. Now, you don't know exactly why it's going, but you know you better figure it out. And sometimes that's what looking at data is like, is we look at this and think, boy, we've had all of this, our applications have tripled over the last couple of years and we're enrolling fewer students. So there's the flare and it's kind of an expensive flare, by the way, it's like a whole (laughs) fireworks show. Uh, so what do we do about it? As we studied it, we realized the issue was not our recruitment practices. It was these students were not that interested. And so therefore we've decided to focus on those who are more interested. I think that goes back to part of what we talked about earlier between this enrollment and marketing type of partnership, because I think it gets back to that data too, because it has to be the entire transaction from the very top of when we do some lead generation and we have an idea of what that lead cost us to get, whether it was through, you know, uh, pay-per-click campaigns or however you want to do the metrics at the top of the funnel. And then all the way down into the metric to be able to say, it's going to cost us this amount to recruit a student. And I think that sometimes without that data trail all the way through, you know, we can be high-fiving ourselves along any place along the way and totally be missing the boat. You know, I was, was writing something for one of our clients today, Bart, and I was thinking this, this fits nicely into your world. You're such a, you're such a much more avid and frequent blogger than I am. You know, the classic, if I had to pick five things, you know, whatever those five things would be. (laughs) Right. So uh, if I had to pick five, if I was a traditional enrollment leader and I had five metrics to watch. I'd probably pick applications, but I would do so a little bit skeptically based on what I've been saying about it. You know, if you turn your application into a glorified reply card, it still is a significant measure of interest. Still, applications matter. Uh, admitted students matter. That admits are a better measure because that says somebody 
says you want that person to come and they've gotten you everything you need to make that decision. Between those two is another step I'd call that we call completed application. Of those original applicants, how many of them got you everything you need in order to make a decision? Uh, that completion rate is a really important metric to watch too. How many students have visited campus who could enroll this fall? Uh, not just sort of a spurious, I think I'll apply. That's a, we're loading up the vehicle and going to visit campus. So that's another metric. And then a fifth one I'd put on that list is, have they submitted a FAFSA and released it? The, the, have they applied for financial aid and released that data to us? Uh, those would, if I had to pick five, those would be five I would pick. And, and coming back to that admissions marketing partnership, I think that's where making sure that we've got the right, that we have the right things in our headlights all the time so that we're not getting excited about false positives, but we're really looking at the most, uh, the most predictive data points to tell us whether we're on track or not toward meeting our goals. Thank you, Tim, for that. And would ask for one more piece of advice that you could offer that could be immediately implemented upon hearing it. What would that piece of advice be? I think, Troy, I would say we're higher ed. When possible, we will always make things more complicated than they need to be. And so my advice would be, for, for those who are listening, whether it's thinking about your data or thinking about your plan or thinking about your partnerships on campus, is there a way you have made it more complicated than it needs to be? And is there a way you could simplify it this afternoon or whenever you're watching this podcast? Is there some way, quick, Stop sending an email, walk down the hallway and talk to your colleague, buy him coffee and sit and talk through a thing that's been, that's been causing an issue between you and your team. Uh, take another look at your data and see, is there something else we could extract from this? Maybe you need to get somebody else's eyes on it. But, but I, I think that's, that would be one piece of advice I would have is wherever possible, is there a way you can simplify it? Have you made things too complicated? And sometimes it takes some other perspective. I mean, I say this as a consultant who would be happy to help people, but also I found some of my best help sometimes when I was on a campus from one of my faculty friends whose opinion I respected, who wasn't living in my day-to-day -day world, but was really good at looking, at looking at a situation or looking at data and saying, well, have you thought about this? And I often got some really helpful perspectives from somebody on campus. So again, we make things too complicated, and I think there are often ways that we can get out of that trap and find some simple solution. Tim, thank you very much for the conversation today. I know personally I always enjoy speaking with you and being in your presence, and I'm sure there are others that may not be familiar with you but would love to engage with you more. For those people, how would they reach out to you? What's the best way to contact you? Yeah, my website is fullerhes.com. The email is tim at fullerhes.com. Yeah, would, would love to answer questions, get perspective on data, do whatever I can to be helpful to your listeners. Again, thank you, Tim. Bart, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share before we close the show? I said it earlier, Tim and I have a relationship uh, beyond just this podcast today, and I have learned a tremendous amount from Tim. I, I mentioned Mike Collette earlier from Anderson, but I've learned so much from Tim and, and being able to just be with him and be on projects and, and, and talk through higher ed issues. And I think one of the things that I've, I've learned is, is that the more I understand about 
you know, enrollment, the more I understand about what happens outside of marketing, the better marketer that I become. And I think that's one thing that I would encourage everyone that's listening that is a higher ed marketer is, you know, don't, don't assume that you have all the answers because, you know, you've won an award for your work or whatever. I mean, that's a real slippery slide to get onto. You've really got to, you know, be, have some humility to be able to recognize that there are experts around you that you need to learn from. And by learning from them, you can actually become better at your craft and really make an impact on campus. And so I would encourage you. And, and one simple thing that I might say is, Hey, you reach out to the admissions team. If you're part of the marketing team, say, Hey, let's do a brown bag lunch once a month. And let's just talk about a book. Let's pick a marketing book one month. Let's talk about enrollment the next month and just learn together. And I think that's going to be one way that you can enhance all that you're doing on your campus. And I think that's a good way to go. So thanks again, Tim, for being a part of the show today. Always good to talk with you. And this is a great topic. The Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education, marketing, and branding agency, and by Ring Digital, providing messaging directly to the devices of your customized audiences within higher ed. On behalf of Bart Kaler, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who's a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? Visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time.